Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the books and ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And it's also where you can sign up for our regular live Zoom events. On September 28th, Thomas Wright will discuss his new book, Aftershocks, Pandemic Politics and the End of the Old International Order. And on October 4th, Ambassador Ryan Crocker joins us for Afghanistan, Iraq and regional challenges. Register at AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, General H.R. McMaster, former US National Security Advisor in the Trump administration and author of the new book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World, which is out in paperback this week. General H.R. McMaster, welcome to Bookstack. Richard, it's great to be with you. Thank you. So congratulations on the new edition uh, of the book. But as you wryly say at the beginning, this is not necessarily the book that most people wanted you to write, even your own family, you say. <laughs> That's right. But you know, of course, the question is, does anybody really need another book about just Donald Trump and and uh, and, and you know and and his uh, you know his his habits and and uh, and and character and so forth and and what I wanted to do is write a book that transcended you know just the Trump administration and really was about the problems and sh- and the challenges and opportunities that we face in the world because Richard I, I just think that that is the superficiality of our understanding of these challenges is, is a huge impediment so I I hope I succeeded in providing readers with with an understanding of how the recent past produced the present as a way to make a projection into the future and to and to and to to lay out ways that we can work together to build a better future for generations to come. Yeah, that's really interesting because you you say very early on that you're looking for a more substantive discussion of the problems that America faces in the world. And of course, you yourself are a historian and, and a soldier. We often talk about the mistake of fighting the last war, but it's interesting that you say that's not the problem. In fact, often we don't study them enough. You know, Rich, I think that's absolutely right. You know, I, I think that there, and I and I cite uh, some of my my friends who are also historians who have made this point that that the problem is not that the militaries you know who have failed in wars uh, really were, were ready to fight the last war, it's that they studied the lessons of, of the last war only superficially, and I think that's true today. I mean, I think if you look at the the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, the catastrophe there that is that is just now really only beginning. Many people are concluding that well, it was it was a, it was a fool's errand, you know, to to try to to transform Afghan society, but of course the consolidation of military gains to get the sustainable political outcomes consistent with what you know brought you into the war to, to to begin with, has always been an integral part of war. It's not an optional phase of war, and and so I think that that we're we're at risk of of actually having to relearn the very the very difficult lessons uh, that we should be learning from the catastrophe in, in Afghanistan. My friend uh, Conrad Crane, a, gr- a great military historian, uh, who wrote wrote a great book called "Bombs, Cities, and Civilians," uh, and uh, and has written a, a number of, of excellent long essays. His, his phrase, I think, captures this this idea. Uh, he often says that we've never been able to never do it again, and 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 I think that we are viewing our departure from Afghanistan as. You know, as as a lesson in in not doing this dirty word nation building, but of course, you know, Afghanistan didn't need to be Denmark. It just needed to be Afghanistan, uh, not under Taliban rule, uh, with a government that's that was fundamentally hostile 
you know, to to jihadist terrorists who are a threat to all civilized peoples. Yeah, it's interesting because you, you say in the book that America's disastrous departure from Afghanistan confirmed that strategic narcissism encourages amnesia. So that sense of forgetting. Um, I mean, maybe let's try to put some of those lessons into practice. I mean, from your own experience as national security advisor, where do you think the US was successful in building good governance in Afghanistan? And what were the shortcomings, do you think, of those efforts to build good governance? Well, you know, the, the problem, and what I've read about in, in Battlegrounds is this, this uh, tendency to take a short-term approach to long-term problems. I and mean, I think the fundamental problem in Afghanistan is that we've, we were always declaring our imminent departure. And, and in so doing, we encouraged our enemies and we sowed doubts among our friends. And and when we did this really as, as early as 2002, 2003, you know, the, the Afghans looked over their shoulders and said, who has our back? Well, nobody. And so what they did is they engaged in a whole range of hedging behavior. And, and the various factions within Afghanistan, rather than coming together behind a unified vision for the future of the country, they began to try to build up their power bases in advance of a post-U.S. Afghanistan, so they would be in a position of relative advantage if, if, the, if, the, if the situation returned to the to a situation uh, analogous to the civil war from ninety two to ninety six and 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 that behavior involved corruption and organized crime uh, and and then you know of course the short term approach was magnified you know by a sudden realization that we hadn't done enough right to develop institutions that were resilient and that could withstand the regenerative capacity of the Taliban which lied across which was lies across the border in Pakistan and and uh, and then that's when we dumped. It just a, a crazy amount of money uh, into the Afghan eco- economy, way beyond the absorptive capacity, and so the the combination of of all this money that that, that w- without without effective oversight uh, and and an ineffective effort at at building institutions, right? They could have put that money to to good use instead of diverted it, diverting it to criminalized patronage networks, actually perpetuated state weakness. And the dependence on Afghanistan on the international community. So, uh, you know, we did not have, I, I would say, Richard, we did not have a reasoned and sustainable approach to Afghanistan uh, until 2017. This is why I, I, the, one of the titles of the chapters in the in the book is is uh, is you know a 20 year war fought you know one year at a time, right? It wasn't it wasn't a 20 year war. It was a one year war fought 20 times over, and. And, uh, and and so w- it wasn't until really we we gave President Trump options in 2017 that he adopted I think an effective approach, a, a long-term approach to Afghanistan. And of course, sadly, he abandoned that by 2019, when when his administration began the capitulation negotiations uh, with the Taliban, yeah. uh, resulting in the, in the in the February 2020 capitulation agreement. Yeah, it, it, it's, very, it's very striking that you're very tough on the last three administrations. President Biden, you say, like Presidents Trump and Obama, adopted the mantra of ending endless wars instead of explaining to the American people what they need to know to sustain commitments abroad. Your emphasis, as, as you just pointed out there, is very much on integrated strategy, not just our goals, but also our assumptions. I wonder, how now do you do you reflect on your own assumptions about Afghanistan, what would you want to rethink and what do you think you got right? Well, Richard, I, I mean, I, I, this, I hate to say it, but I think I, I think I got it right in the book. I mean, I think if you look at the last paragraph of the second chapter on South Asia, 
you know, I, 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 you know, I, I could see what was happening uh, in Afghanistan and, and, and made the observation that the cost of, of, of failure in Afghanistan would far exceed the cost of a sustained and sustainable commitment there. You know, a lot of people these days like to say, really make two observations about, the, about Afghanistan to, to argue that, that the catastrophe there was inevitable, right? The first of these is that, is that we couldn't sustain the effort, right? It was just unsustainable, right? We, we wasted trillions of dollars there. Well, you know, not all that money was wasted, Richard. I mean, if you look at, the, at, at what the, the Afghan people have been able to achieve to make Afghanistan Afghanistan again after the hell of Taliban rule from 96 to, to 2001, uh, you, you see the tremendous gains that were made because now we're seeing them reversed, right, by, by the Taliban. And then also, we, 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 we assume that the level of commitment today would have been the same as the level of commitment at the very height of the war, right, when we had you know, over 120,000 soldiers there uh, and when we were spending about $120 billion a year. Well, the, the, the level of commitment had gone way down you know, to about 8,000, 10,000, whatever the number is, a small number of troops who were enabling the Afghans to bear the brunt of the fight. I mean, 60,000, over 60,000 Afghans gave their lives uh, fighting to preserve the freedoms that they've enjoyed uh, since since 2001. And the level of financial commitment was about 2.5% of the defense budget. And and I, I think, Richard, that was a, a small insurance premium to pay to prevent uh, from happening, what we're seeing happening today in Afghanistan. And of course, the second thing you hear, and you kind of alluded to this already, is that, hey, the American people, you know, di- didn't have, uh, didn't have confidence in the war effort, right? Didn't want to sustain the war effort. But that should come as no surprise when three presidents in a row told the American people it's not worth it. And so what they didn't do, what, what American leaders didn't do is explain to the American people what they deserve to know, which is what is at stake in, in Afghanistan? And then what is a strategy that will deliver a favorable outcome at an acceptable cost? Uh, and, and an outcome that is also worthy you know, of the sacrifices that our servicemen and women make uh, and, and the investments that we make. And I, I really think, Richard, the only time that a president laid that out was in, a, in the August 2017 speech that, that Donald Trump made uh, at Fort Myer, uh, and during which he, he, and he, and he wrote this into the speech himself, he said, you know, this is not the decision I, wanted, I was going to make. But when I sat behind the desk in the Oval Office and when, and when we presented him with, hey, this is what a, a withdrawal from Afghanistan looks like in, in connection with America's interest and the humanitarian cost, but also the, the political cost and the security cost, uh, he made a decision to sustain the effort there. And of course, he walked back from that decision. I think, Richard, in large measure based on the, you know, the, the, the sort of neo-isolationist movement uh, on the far, on the far right in America. Now, obviously, not very many of us get the chance to be in that famous room where it happens. Give, give us an insight. When you're making a decision like that, when you are taking a strategy to the president, when you're asking him to announce something in a speech like that, what happens in the national security staff? How do you formulate the strategy? And then what happens when you go into the Oval Office to uh, ask the, the president to make a decision? Well, Richard, you know, I, I, I had written a book about how and why Vietnam became an American war. And, and having criticized the national security decision-making process as a historian, and then suddenly <laughs> finding myself you know, in, in the role of, of running that process, I was determined to at least not make the same mistakes, right? And what I'd, what I'd written about in, in Dereliction of Duty was how Lyndon Johnson got the advice he wanted 
right? He didn't. He didn't. He didn't receive uh, the best analysis across the departments and agencies of the government, or from international partners, or from any other perspectives. You know, he he actually got the advice he wanted because he was determined, you know, to to not let Vietnam become a danger to his domestic political agenda. So what I tried to do is, is I tried to establish, and we did establish a process that spent a lot more time thinking about the nature of the challenges we faced, to apply design thinking to the challenges that we faced, to, to try to understand these challenges on their own terms. In Afghanistan, what, what are the real drivers of the conflict? What is the role that Pakistan plays? What is the nature of this intra-Pashtun civil war, but also that has grafted onto it a, a problem of jihadist terrorism and so forth? What are the international dimensions of the uh, of the conflict? And then to view that challenge through the lens of our vital interests. What is the so what? Why do we care, right? Well, the, the fundamental reason we care is that we we want jihadist terrorist organizations to never again be able to have the capacity to to commit uh, to commit mass murder on the scale of of September 11th, uh, 2001, to deny them a safe haven and, and support base. And then once you view that that challenge through the lens of vital interest to craft overarching goals and more specific objectives. And then, of course, importantly, Richard, to, to make assumptions, assumptions about the degree to which we have, we and like-minded partners, have agency and influence over this problem, uh, and then to identify obstacles to progress, opportunities to exploit, and then and then to give the president, which what didn't happen in Vietnam either, multiple options, right? So the president gets to make a decision. The person who is elected gets to make the decision. And so we did that, and we, we did this, and this, this was covered a little bit in the press, and I describe it in, in Battlegrounds. We got the president away from distractions, right? We went to Camp David, and and uh, we sat around the table at the at the presidential retreat at Camp David in, in Maryland, and then and 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 we we I I had because I had become chewed up in this process, Richard, you know, because some of the alt right people had come after me, tried to tried to uh, you know try tried to attack me on this issue by leaking you know false stories to the press and and what I was advocating, everything else. So so I asked my deputy to actually brief the three options. Right. And and uh, and so he began with the withdrawal option. He, he began with what we're seeing today and laid out for President Trump. This is what it looks like in Afghanistan after a precipitous withdrawal. And and uh, and then we laid out two other options. The president decided on a sustained and sustainable effort. And he gave that speech in August 2017, which I think made a compelling argument to the American people. Now, did he follow up on that uh, and, and continuing to explain to the American people what is it what is at stake and why it's worth it? No, he didn't. And so I, I I think it's a tragedy, but uh, but but it, it was it was foreseeable. It was difficult, I think, for the president to make the decision he made based on all the promises he had made in the campaign to end the endless war. But the point we're trying to make to him, and I think what ultimately persuaded him, at least for you know, for a moment, was that hey, it's not an endless war. It's 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 an endless jihad that is being waged by jihadist terrorists who are. I think the enemies of all humanity and and the and the fight in Afghanistan was occurring really, I think, on a modern day frontier between barbarism and civilization. And we're just now, I think, beginning to see the negative consequences of having surrendered to terrorists, which is essentially what we did in in the February 2020 agreement and then confirmed by the Biden administration 
with a complete withdrawal prior to September 1st. Yeah, and you you also write about the events of January the 6th uh, in the new afterward. You were talking about people coming after you there. I mean, your takeaway from from what you describe as thugs assaulting the capital uh, is that we need to strengthen democratic institutions and process. You also write that one could almost hear the champagne glasses clinking in the Kremlin as President Donald Trump inflicted more damage on American self-confidence in their democratic institutions and processes than they might have dared hoped. I mean, it seemed to me reading the book that that was a new critical tone about the former president that wasn't in the hardback edition. So is that specifically to do with uh, January the 6th or is is it a broader strategic uh, view that you now have? No, it's it's a broader strategic view. And and I think, Richard, it is reflected in, in, I would say, chapters one and two. In which I describe what what uh, what Russia was trying to achieve in the 2016 election, right? And then and then I also describe what we did to try to pro- you know to, to protect the 2020 uh, election from interference. You know, Russia doesn't care, right? The Kremlin doesn't care. Putin doesn't care who wins American elections, right? What what he really cares about is that he wants a, a large number, a significant number of Americans to doubt the legitimacy of the result. And that's to drag all of us down. He's done the same thing in 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 France. He's he's, he's interfered in the German elections most most recently, uh, and 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 uh, and and supported Brexit. You know, for example, I mean, extreme the extreme case that I cover in the book is the is, is the case of Montenegro, right, where he where where he almost uh, committed murder. You know, assassinated uh, a, a, a the the lead candidate who actually won the election. Uh, to, to, to force an, an outcome in, in Montenegro. But what he wants really is, is for democratic societies to doubt the legitimacy of the results of elections as part of a broader campaign of political subversion that is aimed at attacking our common identity in our society, polarizing us around elections, but also around other hot button issues, right? Like immigration in the United States or gun control and pitting communities against each other, right? So, you know, Putin knows he cannot compete with, you know, with the West broadly, you know, Europe, the United States on on a level playing field. I mean, his economy is the size of Italy's economy. But but what he what he's trying to do his theory of victory is to is to again to just to drag everybody else down so he's the last man standing, and and I think January sixth you know and and of course the false claims of widespread uh, corruption in the in the election is a gift uh, to Vladimir Putin, and again it reinforces the point that I that I make in the book is that you know that that Russia is is not capable of <laughs> of uh, creating divisions in our society we do that ourselves. But Russia exacerbates those divisions and capitalizes on them. It's interesting how much you emphasise competence in the book. In fact, I lost count of the number of times that you emphasise competence. That seems even more important because the threats we face seem so daunting. As you say, great power rivalry with Russia is back with a vengeance. China's no longer hiding its aspirations. Hostile states, Iran, North Korea. There's a new threat of cyber-enabled information warfare, long-range issues, you you point out climate change, energy, food and water security. The list just goes on and on. And it seems to me that one of the points that you're making is that this really isn't going to be a world for amateurs, that we have to be serious in our competence in facing these things. 
Absolutely, Richard. And you know what? We're not serious people. I'm really, I'm really <laughs> depressed about the degree to which we, we are demonstrating our incompetence, right? And and what I try to do in in the book is to is to really emphasize the importance of understanding history, right? If we don't understand how the recent past produced the present, how can we make a projection into the future? We have to acknowledge the complex causality uh, of events and, and and what is driving, you know, the the challenges and opportunities that we that we face today. And and uh, and and I think that that, that the the lodestone around our necks is what I describe in the book as strategic narcissism, right? This tendency to define the world only in relation to us, and then assume that what we decide to do or what we decide not to do is decisive toward achieving a favorable outcome. And of course, the problem with this kind of thinking is that it's self-referential and doesn't acknowledge the agency, the influence, the authorship over the future that others enjoy, especially our, our rivals and enemies and, and, and adversaries. And so this, the, the interactive nature of foreign policy and of strategy, I think, is, is foundational to what I describe in the book and, and foundational to, to real life. And, and we haven't acknowledged the, the competitive nature of the environment that we're in. And then also, you know, I think that makes us vulnerable, right, to all sorts of cognitive traps of, of optimism bias and confirmation bias and mirror imaging. And so I, there has to be a concerted effort, I think, to restore strategic competence as the first step in restoring our confidence, right, our confidence in, in our ability to, to implement a, a sustained and an effective approach to foreign policy uh, and, and a consistent approach over time. Uh, because really, the problems that we're facing today, whether it is you know climate change and carbon emissions associated with it, and and uh, you know energy security, which is related to that, the competition with China or Russia, or the danger from the only hereditary communist dictatorship in the world, North Korea, or or Iran's efforts to get a nuclear weapon as it continues to wage a four decade long proxy war against the great Satan, us, you know, the, in America, the little Satan, uh, is Israel and its Arab neighbors. I mean, these are the, the challenges I describe in the book, and none of them, none of them can be solved by sort of a quick fix or or you know a policy memo that's that's developed in in Washington without regard to the true nature of the problem. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned confidence there, and that's another theme in the book. For example, you're very critical of President Obama. Under President Obama, we didn't fly too high, you say. Uh, we began flying too low. Ha I mean, what, what does that confidence mean in practice? And, and how does it relate to this other idea that you have in the book of, of strategic empathy? Well, you know, we do we we do have agency, right? We we can't solve these problems. We, we're not, you know, we're, we're not uh, omnipotent. And, and 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 I think that you know what I've, of course I describe in the book is is overconfidence in the 1990s, and then and then the shift in overconfidence and and over optimism to to pessimism and resignation uh, in in the 2000s, and and what the point that I'm trying to make with that criticism of the Obama administration is that problems and challenges to our security our prosperity that develop abroad can only be dealt with at an exorbitant cost once they reach our shores. And, and I think that's true. We, you could say that of jihadist terrorism, and we learned that in 9-11. We relearned it uh, again in, in December 2011 when, when, when then Vice President Biden called President Obama and said, thank you for allowing me to end this goddamn war. Okay, well, think of the conceit that, that underlies that, that, uh, uh, that, that statement is, is that wars end when, when one party disengages, as if al-Qaeda in Iraq looked around and said, oh, hey, the Americans are gone. I guess we'll just stop. Well, of course, they didn't stop. And 
and they gained strength and 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 power and and then morphed into Al Qaeda in Iraq 2.0, which became ISIS, which became the most destructive terrorist organization in history. But we're about to relearn that again in, in, in Afghanistan. So I think it's it's really really important uh, for for us to 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 learn to be able to learn, you know, from our most recent experiences. And we have not demonstrated our ability to do that. We lack fundamental competence in national security. I think in large measure based on the emotional impetus, right, that, that drives foreign policy. One in the 1990s, which I criticize as, as over-optimism, and I think today, uh, you know, pessimism and, and resignation. I think this is also a lesson, this, this, this lesson of the need to be engaged in a sustained and sustainable manner internationally is, is a lesson from, from COVID uh, as well, right? Uh, the, the, a problem that was not contained, you know, thank you, Chinese Communist Party, you know, but, but, uh, but, but again, a problem that, that could only have been contained with a sustained effort abroad. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned China there and, and the pandemic. You you point out that the global pandemic has, in fact, intensified the competition with the Chinese Communist Party. But but you also warn us against drawing the wrong lessons from history. The, for example, the so-called Thucydides trap, where uh, which sees some kind of inevitable conflict or war between a rising power uh, and the established power. So so what about China? What what should we what should the United States be doing in developing its strategy towards China? Well, Richard, the story that I tell in Battlegrounds, I try to I try to actually just tell the story of President Trump's visit to China as a, as a window into the, into the nature of the Chinese Communist Party, the threat that the Chinese Communist Party poses to the world, and then what we should do about it. And, 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 and that story really centers on, on our rejection in 2017 of a fundamentally flawed assumption that underpinned our approach to China since the end of the Cold War. And that was the assumption that China, having been welcomed into the international order, would play by the rules. And as China prospered, it would liberalize its economy and liberalize its form of governance. Okay, we knew by 2017 that was not the case. It was not the case, of course, because of our strategic narcissism and our and our failure to apply what the historian Zachary Shore calls strategic empathy, and that's that's a view of these challenges from the perspective of the other, with particular attention to the emotions and ideology that drive and constrain the other. And in this case, the Chinese Communist Party is driven by a combination of fear and aspiration, fear of of, of losing control. Of losing its exclusive grip on power, and and then and then the aspiration, right, to to associate it with you know this narrative of national rejuvenation and taking center stage in the world, and these two are connected because it's the evoking of, of this nationalist, this jingoistic nationalist sentiment that is also a mechanism of control for the party, as well as its its its, its race to perfect its technologically enabled Orwellian police state, and so we have to recognize that the Chinese Communist Party poses a threat because if it succeeds, not only in, in, in stifling human freedom uh, inside of, of China through, through the most, uh, the, the most uh, brazen and, 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 and terrible means, including, uh, including a, a genocidal campaign against, uh, against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, but, to, to, but then also to, to export its authoritarian mercantilist model that the world will be less free, less prosperous, and less safe. And I think this is an element, a part of the book that I think is just played out almost, you know, uh, almost uh, perfectly. Not that I mean, not that we want this to, to, to occur, but I think 
the Chinese Communist Party has become much, much more aggressive since uh, since the pandemic. And and of course, you see that in in, this, in the behavior, right, in in connection with this wolf warrior diplomacy, which added insult to injury after foisting COVID nineteen on the world and subverting the World Health Organization and 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 uh, repressing you know, anybody uh, who was trying to ring the alarm bells about the pandemic, journalists and and uh, and doctors, and then and then and how aggressive physically China's become, bludgeoning Indian soldiers to death on the Himalayan frontier, you know, weaponizing the islands in the South China Sea, ramming and sinking Vietnamese vessels, uh, the, the the military threats to to Japan and the Sakakus and 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 on to Taiwan, massive cyber attacks against against our medical research facilities in the midst of a pandemic, a campaign of economic coercion against Australia, right? I mean, the list goes on. And so what the point I tried to make in, in the book is that, hey, hey, this China, you know, and, and behavior of the Chinese Communist Party, this is not a Washington, Beijing problem. This is a free world, you know, China problem. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and I think that's bearing out even as we see, you know, President Biden host, you know, the quad format, which is the, you know, the US, Australia, uh, Japan, and India in, in Washington. And I think that that recognition is is now accepted broadly, but it wasn't accepted in 2017. And and one of the stories I tell in Battlegrounds is is how we affected, I think, what is the the biggest shift in U.S. foreign policy since the end of the Cold War, and that's this shift, you know, based on you know, from a, a strategy of cooperation and engagement based on the flawed assumption that China would, you know, would liberalize and play by the rules, to to a a policy of of transparent competition with China. So would you do you see the new trilateral security pact between Australia, the the UK and the United States as a step in the right direction? It is, of course it is. And there's been of course a lot of attention based on uh, on that on that announcement. But you know th these are not exclusive arrangements, right? We're this is just a, this is just three countries who have mutual interests uh, globally and then across, especially the Indo-Pacific, coming together for security cooperation, right? And 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 security cooperation for a noble purpose, which is to to deter war, to deter war by being prepared for it, and and to help convince the Chinese Communist Party leadership that that it can't accomplish their objectives through the use of force in the South China Sea or vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, Australia. You know, I think the message to China ought to be, hey. Nobody owns the ocean, right? And and the part of the ocean they're trying to own is a part of, is a part of the ocean across which one third of the world's surface trade flows. So this is a high stakes game, and uh, and and I know that those on the continent, you know, our, our French and and German, you know, friends and and allies are it, this this arrangement caused some consternation. But again, these are not exclusive clubs, right? These are the this these kinds of. Uh, arrangements and 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 cooperative uh, deals uh, in this case in, involving you know nuclear powered submarines uh, ought to ought to be encouraged just like the quad format right is is not an exclusive group right it, we ought to think of these uh, of of these cooperative arrangements as kind of a hub and spoke right that 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 magnifies the influence of our individual countries uh, where our interests align which they do and where we are bound together by principles right our our, our belief that hey. You know, people should have a say in how they're governed, right? And 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 that's a fundamental difference between the the Chinese Communist Party's ideology and, and what we believe in in the free world. And of course, I, I believe that applies to China as well. I don't I don't believe that any people are culturally predisposed toward not wanting a say in how they're governed. And of course, this is why China's obsessed with Taiwan, right? Because Taiwan actually exposes the lie, you know, that that the Chinese people actually. You know, prefer to be, you know, to be to be repressed 
uh, and, and to not have a say in how they're governed. In some ways, the, the book itself is a reflection on uh, the role of the military in politics. You cite uh, General George Marshall, FDR's Army Chief of Staff, as your role model for how a soldier can serve the country as an apolitical actor. I just wondered what you made of the recent accounts of General Milley as Chief of Staff during the transition from the Trump administration uh, to the Biden administration. Well, you know, I'm concerned about it, Richard, because, you know, I think there is an attempt these days on part of both parties to drag the military into partisan politics. It's not a new trend, right? I mean, this has always been the case. And, and you know, the, 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 the time at which the, the American officer corps became most politicized was during our civil war, when large numbers of American officers you know, really, uh, you know, became traitors for slavery. Okay, so it's not that bad, certainly. But but in, in more recent history, I think this goes back to the to Bill Clinton administration when when remember a large number of flag officers, these are admirals and generals, signed a letter of endorsement for Bill Clinton, and and then I, I think that there's been this effort since then to kind of sign up you know generals as a as a as a group to support one political candidate or the other. Well, we just don't want that, right? Because that'll that that'll that'll erase I think parts of this this bold line which should be in place between the military and partisan politics, a line put in place by our founders, right? Because they they recognized, based on their recent history of the bloody wars in England in the 17th century and the rise of Cromwell, that this was a danger to democracy. So I think, I think our political leaders should be held to account whenever they try to drag the military into partisan politics. And this is true of, you know, everybody likes to cite, you know, Donald Trump, uh, you know, uh, with General Milley walking across Lafayette Square. But, you know, but how about the Speaker of the House from the Democratic Party, you know, surreptitiously taping a phone conversation with General Milley uh, to, 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 to raise the specter of, of the irresponsible use of, of nuclear weapons, you know, or, or how about uh, then, you know, the, the candidate for president, Biden saying the Joint Chiefs of Staff will march out President Trump. Well, you know, hey, the military actually and the executive branch, based on our founders and their wisdom, has no role in the transition of American government. And you know, I'll tell you, Richard, I know that the January sixth is is uh, you know is it was, was horrible, and and of course, you know, we're there's an investigation going on now conducted by our first uh, branch of government by our our legislature about it. But I think we ought to we ought to take a moment to celebrate the strength of our institutions because our institutions actually held up pretty well. If you go back to just before the assault on the Capitol and and look at the at the, you know, the then this you know, the Senate majority leaders uh, speech, uh, uh, Senator McConnell's speech, who, who I think would never be accused of, of being a, a charismatic speaker, but I'll tell you, this speech was 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 extraordinary and 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 upheld right the the the, uh, the role of the first branch of government and 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 the separation of powers. Um, and then, if you look at what our judiciary accomplished in this period of of time by by you know dismissing these 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 uh, allegations of widespread uh, fraud and so forth. So anyway, Richard, I, I just think that. We need to emerge from these crises, the pandemic, the recession. This is what I write about in the afterword of the of the paperback version, uh, and 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 this you know this vitriolic partisanship that we've experienced. We need to emerge from it stronger, and we've done this in the past, Richard. I mean, I, I mean, if you think back to the 1970s, right? It wasn't a pretty picture, right? It was a a lost war in Vietnam. A resignation of a president after the Watergate scandal. Uh, it was, you know, stagflation, uh, and and uh, and then you know the 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 exclamation point at the end of that decade 
uh, was a revolution in Iran and, and a hostage crisis, right? So, so I, yeah, we emerged from that stronger in the 1980s. 1980s weren't a picnic either, right? Remember the Beirut bombings in 83, Iran-Contra. I mean, you know, I mean, but you know what's great about our democracies is we have the capacity for self-correction, right, below the level of revolution. And in Battlegrounds, I quote Wang An, who made that point, who was a, was a Chinese immigrant to the United States and, and, and was the, you know, the groundbreaking founder of Wang Computers, right? So, so I, I think all of us across the free world should take a moment, right, to, to celebrate what we have and then recognize, hey, that, 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 that our, you know, our governments, you know, our societies are a work in progress. I mean, our founders in, in, in America, they recognize that. They recognize that our, our republic was imperfect and would require what they called, what they what they termed constant nurturing. Okay, so let's let's bury the vitriol just for uh, for a minute, you know, and 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 start to nurture our republics and and gain strength. And final question. I mean, it, it you talked about the afterword to the to the paperback edition of the book. It 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 seemed to me that that afterword was more forceful in tone than the hardback edition had been. That the earlier edition seemed to me like a man reflecting on his time in the arena. The afterword sounds like a man preparing to get back into the arena. Um, so I guess my question is, what's next for you, General? Well, you know, I, I really love what, what I'm doing now, right? I mean, I, I you know, probably predictably, you know, for somebody who served in the army for 34 years, I made a, a mission statement for myself when I when I transitioned to my to my second career, made my third career, if you count my time as as an employee of a famous restaurant called McDonald's, you know, before I went to, <laughs> before I went to West Point at the age at the age of uh, at, at the at the age of uh, of seventeen, uh, but but you know I I, I the, that mission statement is to try to contribute right to a, a fuller understanding uh, uh, of the challenges and opportunities we face internationally, um, in part as a, as a way to reverse the polarization we see in our society and to help develop a you know a common agenda that transcends the partisanship and the divisions that we see today, and and I'm at a, at a perfect place to do that here at the Hoover Institution. And and uh, I'm with great colleagues. I'm with wonderful students, and and I'm able to teach and 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 write and and hopefully contribute to that mission. And so that's that's what I'm enjoy doing, Richard. I I, I miss obviously serving uh, and being around soldiers in, in particular, and being parts of teams that are committed to missions, you know, bigger than than than, than any individual. Uh, but but you know, I, I have a, a version of that I think here now with uh, with with young people and students here. At Stanford, and and uh, and I have an affiliation with Arizona State University, which is 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 really enjoyable and and fun to do, and and so I'm happy. I'm happy here in my in my literal ivory tower, uh, in my office, my my office in in the Hoover Tower. And Mark Marshall was a role model, but is Eisenhower a role model too? <laughs> oh yeah, I think he he is a role model. I think it, you know, and and there's a wonderful book. Uh, you know, by by his his uh, his his uh, his granddaughter on Eisenhower's leadership, which I'm just now starting. And and actually, we uh, we had Susan Eisenhower on the podcast earlier. Okay, it's a it's a wonderful book, and and uh, and you know, I, I really I really liked his style of leadership as well, right? And and of course, many have written about this over the years. You know, the idea of the hidden hand presidency. But what Eisenhower did is he did devote time to try to understand these complex challenges. I think the you know the the work that's been done on his decision in 1954 not to intervene in in, in Vietnam I think is is instructive right and and uh, and and really 
is 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 a model of how a president should make decisions, right? To to try to understand these challenges on their own terms, view them through the lens of vital interests, and then consider options because it's in the consideration of options, competing options, that you can really expose the long term costs and consequences and risks and 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 opportunities associated with uh, with these co- courses of action. So the book is Battlegrounds: The Fight to Defend the Free World. It's written by my guest, General H. R. McMaster, and published in a new edition by Harper paperbacks this week. Uh, But for now, General McMaster, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Richard, you have a great a great program here. What a privilege to, to be part of it. Thank you so much. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.